Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. I'm actually taking this passage of Mark 8, 27 to 38 very slowly, working through it for several weeks, because we're going to see this is a key moment in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to look at verses 31 to 33. They will be up on the screen, but they're also in your booklet, and I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Hear now the very words of the living God. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. A number of years ago, uh, Linda and I and our kids took a trip out west. We were taking Tim out actually to go to uh, the Air Force Academy, and we spent a couple of weeks going out west. And one of the things we kept doing was crossing the Continental Divide. And sometimes the Continental Divide was near the top of an impressive high point, and you could kind of see that it was a high And other times, I remember one place we went within Yellowstone, it was actually a fairly flat place, and there was a little pool, and they had a description that the water that flowed out of one side of the pool, as you were facing it, flowed out on the right-hand side, was going to ultimately end up down in the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico and out to the Atlantic Ocean. And the water out of this, the other side of this small pool was going to flow the other way and actually end up in the Pacific Ocean. And it was right there. The, the, the Continental Divide is that spot where everything on one side goes to the west and everything on the other side goes to the east. And whether you see it or not at the moment, and you can track it all the way down through the southwest, you can keep seeing places where it says it's the Continental Divide. At that point, everything changes. Water that was flowing in one direction now is going to start flowing in the other direction. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, is the Continental Divide of the Gospel of Mark. Now, why do I say that? There's basically two huge sections in the Gospel of Mark. From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Mark chapter 8, verse 30, the question is, who is Jesus? And Peter finally answers that in chapter 8, verse 29, when he says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the King, that's who you are. And then from that point forward, from Mark 8.31 all the way to the end of the gospel, the question shifts from who is Jesus, that's been answered, to why did Jesus come? He's the king, but what kind of king is he? 
And everything in the gospel from this point forward is going to be pointing to the amazing fact that he's the king who came to die. From this point forward, from chapter 8, verse 31, through the end of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 52, we're going to be on a journey. And we'll keep seeing little symbols that they're on a journey, but we're not told exactly where they're going. Ultimately, we find out they're heading to Jerusalem. And the whole section is this journey. But three different times during this journey, Jesus is going to tell the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be put to death. The disciples can't understand this. I mean, we're going to see how Peter responds today. Another time, they're going to say, we're trying to figure out what die and be raised again means. It's so foreign to their way of thinking, very clear language doesn't make any sense to them. But that's what's going to be happening in this point uh, forward in the gospel. And so we're kind of slowing down at this continental divide to pay attention where we've come from and where we're going to. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive into the text. Last week we saw Peter, or two weeks ago, we saw Peter with the astounding revelation. But now I want you to see the way Jesus responds to Peter's revelation, which is very interesting. The first thing to notice here is Jesus begins speaking of not the Christ, which is what Peter said he is. Peter said, you're the Christ. But Jesus begins to speak about the Son of Man. Notice in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, again, like a continental divide, we, we may rush right by this and not pay attention to it. But it's important that we pay attention to the fact Peter said, you're the Christ. But Jesus immediately says, okay, yes, you're right. Now let me explain what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And this is because there, there's many reasons, but throughout the gospel, Jesus constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man. Almost never does he use the title Messiah or Christ, despite the fact that it becomes so common in the New Testament that many people think Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ, which is not, it's a title, but it's so common in the rest of the New Testament that that's the way we think of it. But it's interesting that it's not the title Jesus used of himself. He used Son of Man. Now, there's many reasons for this, and actually in our After Hours video that you can get off of Facebook or off the website that I'm going to film today, I'll explain many reasons why he liked the title Son of Man. It's a very rich title with a lot of Old Testament uh, teaching behind it. But there is one key thing that we're going to see today why he did not like it. Why he did, I mean, why he preferred that and why he did not like the title of Christ the Messiah. And that's because the idea of the Messiah had way too many misconceptions. If you said Jesus is the Messiah, people immediately had a whole list of things of what they thought that meant. So who is he? He's the Messiah, therefore this is why he came. And Jesus says, no, every bit of why you assume I came is virtually wrong. Almost every bit of it. Now, why do I say that? The common conception of the Messiah was he was a conquering king. He was going to be a political, military savior and deliverer. 
For example, I could show you this many places, but this is a commentary. The, the Targums were commentaries on biblical verses. And one of the early predictions of the Messiah that Jews loved to talk about at the time was out of uh, Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, where it said that a ruler was going to come out of Judah. But here was their commenting on the verse. How fine is the king, the Messiah, who will arise from those of the house of Judah. He girds his loins and goes forth and sets up the ranks of battle against his enemies and kills the kings together with their commanders, and no king and commander can stand before him. He reddens the mountains with the blood of their slain, and his garments are dipped in blood. This is who we're looking for. He's going to come in, and he's going to clean house militarily. That's what he's going to do. Now, interestingly, of course, depending on when you were in Israel's history, that might have been Babylon. It might have been the Persians. It might have been the Seleucid or Ptolemaic rulers. Or by the time of the first century, it was Rome. But the point was, whoever it is we don't like He's going to come in and he's going to militarily crush them. And notice, there's going to be blood spilled on the mountain, but whose blood's it going to be? The blood of the enemies. That's whose blood is going to be spilled. And so this is what almost everyone expected of the Messiah or the Christ. The Messiah is just the Jewish term, the Christ is the Greek equivalent of the same word that what he was going to do is he was going to destroy, destroy Rome and all the enemies of God, all the wicked ones. Now, if, if you read and think biblically, you might realize there's a problem with that. Because if he's going to destroy the wicked, who's that going to include? Yes, you and me. <laughs> I might be a little less excited about this prospect if I realized that it would be my blood spilt on the mountains. But that's what everyone thought. And so no wonder Jesus does not like to use this title because that's not who he is. So now that the disciples have understood he is the Christ, he is the king, now he's going to be teaching them what he came to do and it is not what they thought. So notice his shocking revelation here. We're told that he boldly teaches that he's going to suffer and die. So first off, notice, rather than conquering, he's going to suffer many things, he tells us. Rather than being crowned, he's going to be rejected. See, what Peter would have assumed is, I've understood you're the Christ, and now other people are going to understand this. You're going to go down to Jerusalem. You're going to be crowned. You're going to be acclaimed. You're going to be enthroned as the king. And Jesus' response is, not quite. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, but I'm going to actually suffer many things, and I'm going to be rejected. But then it's even more astounding that notice he says who he's going to be rejected by, because Peter might have said, well, yeah, I know the Romans are going to reject you, of course, because you're coming here to deal with them. But who does Jesus say he's going to be rejected by? The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, or the scribes, all the religious authorities, all the religious experts who were supposed to be teaching the people of God to prepare them to be ready for the Messiah, they're the very ones who are going to be rejecting Jesus. And 
To make it even worse, the, the word rejected there, there's a, a very specific Greek word. It's not used a whole lot in the New Testament, but this, this particular word is not that they're, it doesn't mean they're going to misunderstand who he is. The word means they're going to test and they're going to reject him as counterfeit. It was used, for example, this particular word was used if you were buying pottery to test it, you would hold it up to the light and you would see if it had been cracked and then filled in with wax. And, and if it was, you would reject it. That's the word that is used here. These religious leaders are going to look at Jesus they're going to test him. They are going to regard him as unworthy. They are going to reject him as a counterfeit. That's what Jesus says is going to happen. Now, the word is not used a whole lot in the New Testament. The majority of times that it's used is in quoting a particular text out of the Old Testament. And that's Psalm 118, verse 22. In fact, Jesus is going to use it when speaking to these leaders. In Mark chapter 12, verse 10, he's going to say this, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected, same word, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is a very important verse the New Testament picks up many times. And it's saying here, look, it's not that they didn't realize it. They looked at the stone. They said, this stone is garbage. And they threw it to the side and God says, not only is it not garbage, it's the most important stone in the entire structure. You are wrong. I reject your rejection. Notice Peter brings this up in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he's talking about Jesus. And he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And then down in verse 7, he quotes it. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now I bring up the verse in Peter because you got to remember, Mark got his gospel from Peter, is what early church tradition tells us. See, I believe Peter can even remember the very incident we're going to be reading today because it was such a shocking thing for him to realize that when Messiah came, the people who should have known the best, understood the most, should have rejoiced at his coming, they were the very ones that rejected him. And so Peter says, look, to we who believe the stone is precious, but to those who are not of faith, whoever they are, they reject him. They count him as unworthy. See, no wonder Peter brings up the rejection of Jesus by men, but his exaltation by the Father, because it is burned into his mind, this very interchange we're having today. Because, you know, you got a picture. Remember, Peter's the first guy that got it. The first human that actually confesses with his mouth who is Jesus. And the entire first half of the gospel, the only one that states it is Peter, and then right in the very next breath, he shows he still doesn't understand. He, he accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, but he rejects what that means, what Jesus actually came to do. 
So notice Jesus says he's going to suffer many things and be rejected, but he goes on and says, I'm actually going to be put to death. He doesn't just suffer, he's put to death. He, rather than coming to crush others, is going to be crushed himself. Rather than making the mountain run uh, run, uh, red with the the blood of his enemies, he's going to have the mountain run uh, red with whose blood? His own. Now, this is shocking and and unbelievable that this is going to happen. But then notice Jesus goes on and states that he will rise again from the dead. After three days, he will rise again. He's going to die, but he's going to live again. He will rule and he will reign, but he's going to do it through resurrection, not through the power of a political military conquest. Glory is is going to be his, but only after the shame of the cross. So the the problem is the disciples seem to have gone deaf before this point. They they don't even seem to get to the resurrection part. We're going to see that that they have to keep having that unfolded because they are so dumbfounded. Have you ever been in a conversation where the conversation suddenly takes a 90-degree turn and your ears start humming and you don't seem to hear everything that's stated afterwards. You miss the rest of it because you're so stuck on what, what was that? What did you just say? That's what's going on with the disciples right now. They're, you, who's going to die? What's going to go on? They don't even seem to get the whole point, but it's okay. I'm going to be raised. They're so stuck on the you're going to die. Now, notice here, and I love that Mark puts it this way, Jesus here, we're told, speaks boldly and plainly that he has to die. Now, what's interesting about this is throughout the gospel, how is Jesus taught almost every time we've seen in the gospel? In parables, okay? He's been teaching in parables. He's been teaching in riddles. Remember the the Syrophoenician woman? Hey, it's not right to take the dogs. I mean, he's throwing everything out there, and you got to mull over. you got to work. For the first time, Mark says, no, no, no. There's no parable going on here. He's speaking very clear, very blunt. Now, the funny thing is, of course, the disciples, every parable they've tried to read literally and have not gotten them. Now that he's speaking bluntly and literally, we're going to see they keep struggling, saying, what does he mean by dying? Uh, Dying is what he means by dying. Okay, this is not a parable. He is speaking clearly. He is speaking boldly and plainly. The interesting thing is, this is the only time the word plainly is used in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Right here. Because Jesus usually teaches in parables, but here he speaks boldly and plainly because Mark wants us to know there is no misunderstanding what he's saying. You don't have to meditate on this. You don't have to think deeply about this. This part he put right there on the surface. He made it very easy and very plain. And then one last thing that Jesus does here that is shocking is notice he does not say this is a possibility. I've been, I've been gauging the political winds and I think I might be in trouble when we get to Jerusalem. Notice what he says is this must happen. It is absolutely necessary for this to happen. The, the, the Greek word day there means it is an abs- it's a necessity. This is not an accident. It's not something that just might happen. It must happen. 
And the reason for this is Jesus ultimately did not die because of an accident, but rather in fulfillment of God's word and will revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, this is, this is not something that is up to us to decide what's going to happen. The Father has already spoken what is going to happen. That is what the Old Testament is about. It has told you this over and over and over again. And God's word and God's will is going to be fulfilled. The Messiah must suffer and die. Next week, we're going to take time and we're actually going to, as kind of an excursus on Mark's gospel, we're going to jump back and look at Isaiah 52 and 53, which is one of the key passages where this is taught in the Old Testament. And we're going to see, again, people struggled one of the things they did, they looked and they saw Isaiah 53 and they said, well, yes, there's the parts here about the, the, this person ruling and reigning, that's the Messiah. But there's the parts about suffering and dying, that's not the Messiah. Except for it is. But we struggle. We do not think the way God thinks. And so Jesus here is revealing all of this. Now, the amazing thing is the response. Because remember, Peter has just revealed that Jesus is the king. You, you are the Lord. And then the very next thing we read Peter does is here in verse 32. On, when Jesus speaks plainly about this, Peter takes him aside and begins to do what? Okay, now, this has got to be stop the presses. What in the world? I mean, see, Peter is apparently going aside and saying, Jesus, listen, let me inform you of this because I'm the one who's figured out who you are. I mean, I'm a, obviously, I'm a guy of insight. So let me explain to you, you have no understanding of what's going to happen to you. That's what he's doing. What? Th this is like, you know, me trying to explain to Einstein the theory of relativity or something. I, I, I don't... Peter's been struck completely stupid at this point, that he thinks he knows better why Jesus has come than Jesus does. He thinks he understands the Messiah's future better than Jesus. And notice the amazing thing here is he doesn't just take Jesus aside and whisper. What is the word that he does? He rebukes him. Normally in the gospel, who's getting rebuked? Demons? and Satan. The normal thing that gets rebuked, Jesus, very, the very first time we see this word in the gospel, Jesus rebukes a demon, tells it to be silent. The, the word is sometimes translated, be silent. Peter's basically saying, Jesus, you need to shut up with this stuff. This is a strong, strong word. Make no mistake about it. This is, this is not good that Peter does this. In fact, you know, other gospels sometimes like to tone these things down, but, but Mark is being very, very blunt because Peter, I believe, is remembering this crystal clear as one of the most shameful moments of his entire life. The disciple has forgotten his place and he thinks he knows better than the master. And so he rebukes Jesus. But see, the reality is, why is he doing that? Before we think, oh, Peter, oh, Peter, what are you thinking? 
See, the problem is he's got his preconceptions. And when you've got a preconception, you see what you want to see. One of the, the commentaries brought up a, a thing on a study that was done where they, they took and they put goggles, some on a group of Americans and some on a group of Mexicans. And what they did is they flashed, and in one eye you saw a bullfighter, and in the other eye you saw a baseball player. And they flashed them up at the same time. Guess which ones the Mexicans reported seeing? The bullfighter. They didn't see a baseball player. Nope, it was a bullfighter. That's what you fly. Guess what the Americans saw? A baseball player. And what had they both been shown? Both of them. But your preconception determines what you see. And Peter has a preconception. The Messiah will come, and the Messiah is going to crush our enemies. And uh, Jesus, you must be mistaken. Because it sounded like you were saying you were going to get crushed. And that can't be. And so Peter's preconceptions about what it means to be the Messiah are overwhelming his knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, which he just said literally seconds before. I mean, the words are barely out of his mouth. But that's a warning to you and to me that we have to be careful with this. And this is not applying the word yet, but here's a free tip. Don't correct Jesus. Okay? I went to years of seminary to get that. If you're thinking, I'm going to rebuke Jesus, bad idea. But that's what Peter's doing here. He's decided that it's okay to do it. Now, how's Jesus going to respond? in a very meek and mild manner. Verse 33, Jesus turns and he looks and sees the other disciples and we don't know if it's because they all thought the same thing Peter did, but Peter was the one that was bold enough because he usually is to say what everybody else is thinking, right? You know, Peter's, sometimes if you've got a whole group of kids, they've always got the one that they send to go get mom and dad. To, they, they, they pet float the trial balloon through this child, right? Peter's kind of that guy among the disciples. He's the one that'll step out and do it. So it may be that Jesus is correcting them. Maybe the, the disciples weren't sure and Jesus is wanting to prevent any misunderstanding, but for whatever reason, he looks at the disciples and then he turns and we're told he rebukes Peter. Same word again. Very strong word. And the interesting thing is, though he rebukes Peter, who does he actually speak to? Satan. And he says, you know, Satan, get behind me. Satan, you know, depart from me. It's the same basic idea that he says in the wilderness in the temptation. Because Jesus is hearing the same voice he heard in the wilderness. See, the temptations that Satan offered to Jesus is, you can have the crown. You want to have all the nations, you want to be the king, you can do that without the cross. I'll just give it to you. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. And it's yours, no cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. I know that voice. And the, the root 
to the, to the crown leads through the cross. The throne comes through suffering. That is the way that it will be. And so Jesus speaks to Satan because, see, here we're learning. Peter's not just mistaken. He's actually being a mouthpiece of Satan. His preconceptions have warped him to the point that the very things he's saying, they're not just wrong. They're actually satanic. They are against the way of God. And Jesus is recognizing the same temptation, again, from the wilderness. The crown without the cross, glory without suffering. And so Jesus resolutely refuses this satanic temptation, and he sets his face to obey his Father, even if it means suffering and death. He is saying, once again, you already tried this at the beginning of the ministry. Now we're at the continental divide. I'm again setting my face, and then we're going to see it again in the garden, right? The same temptations are going to come, and every time Jesus says, no, not my will, but the Father's will be done. And so then notice the last thing that he says to Peter is not only get behind me, Satan, he says, you ha don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The satanic way is the things of men. Now notice here, it doesn't seem like a horror movie, okay? When we see Satan work in Hollywood shows, it's always obvious, right? Like, how do people not get what's going on here? I mean, there's all of this crazy stuff happening. It's so obviously evil. Oh, if it were only that way. Okay, but that's not the way it was in the garden, Okay, Satan didn't say, hey, just one little bite out of this fruit and it'll mean death for all of your descendants for thousands and thousands of years. That's not the way he works. It's always just a slight thing. It makes perfect sense to us, especially to fallen humans. So the suggestion here is surely God would not want his son, the messianic king, to suffer at the hands of wicked men. Surely God would not want the son to die. I mean, doesn't that make sense? And that's exactly what Satan is thinking. The reality is the way of the cross is a foolish stumbling block to, God, to fallen humans. But it is the wisdom and the way of God. Notice Paul brings us up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he tells us this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Make no mistake, right here is a, a, a demarcation line. Here's another continental divide, if you will. When you look at the Father's plan to have the Son suffer and die in our place, do you see foolishness or do you see wisdom? Do you see weakness or do you see the power of God? To use a phrase that one 
fool even said recently, do you see cosmic child abuse or do you see salvation? You see one or the other when you look at the cross. Humans are always tempted for a theology of glory, but only a theology of the cross can repair and restore the cosmic treason of sin. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this is the way of God. And what we're going to look at in a couple of weeks is Jesus is going to go on and teach. It's not just that the cross is the way for the Messiah. Who's it also the way for? Us. Right? That'll sell a million books, won't it? Do we still like a theology of glory? Do we like being told, just come to Jesus and everything will get better and better for you every day? Do we still like being told that we are the people of God and we should be in charge? Has anybody ever heard anything like that? According to the passage we're looking at today, is that God's way or Satan's way? Don't get quiet. Be clear, it's Satan's way. It's not the way of God. It's not the way of God for the Messiah. It's not the way of God for us. I'll let you off the hook. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. How, how do we apply this? What does it mean? The first thing is, do I see that even believers can have partial sight? You remember a couple of weeks ago we looked and the lead into this story was that strange healing. You remember where Jesus takes the blind man and for the first time ever, remember he spits and he touches the guy's eyes and then the strange thing, hey, how are you seeing now? Well, I kind of see, but people are like trees walking around and then Jesus touches him again and then it's full sight. And remember I said it was kind of paralleled throughout this section. Well, the same thing is going on here. See, Peter saw that Jesus is the Messiah, but he didn't fully see. Because when Jesus said, you're right, Peter, now let me explain what that means. What was Peter's response to that? Jesus, I think you kind of see like trees walking around out there. Your sight is a little off, Lord. But see, it's not Jesus' sight needs correcting. It's Peter's sight needs correcting. Even though Peter has understood that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, he doesn't understand what it means. And the Scripture is replete with examples of true followers of God misunderstanding what God is doing right around them. Don't mistake that. Don't misunderstand that. True believers can get confused because God does not always work the way that we think he's going to work. He just absolutely does not. Now, this is not a call for us to compromise on God's revealed will in the Scripture. It's a call for us to embrace that will, but it does call for us to have humility in our relationships with others. Because I'm a Christian, does that mean I've got everything figured out? No, it does not. And I need to have the, the technical term is epistemic humility. Don't you love big words like that? 
that means, you know, don't get above your raisin and what you think you know. When we're tempted to think we understand everything, be careful. Peter thought he understood more than he really understood. He did understand who Jesus was. He did not understand what that meant. He did not understand what was coming. See, when Peter had that revelation, he thought it meant Jesus is going to ride into glory and what's going to happen with Peter? <laughs> I'm going to be empowered too. Not I'm going to end up crucified upside down in Rome as I'm watching Nero kill Christians in droves. That's not what Peter thought. But the reality was that was exactly how it was going to happen. So the first thing is, do I understand that even as a believer, I can have partial sight, and does that lead me to humility? Second thing, and this is critical where we often can have partial sight, do I see the deepest need of humanity? See, you know why everybody wanted a political, military messiah? What did they think was their deepest need? I need me some political liberation. And if my deepest need is political liberation from the Romans, then what is God's solution going to be? A Messiah who's a general, who rides in and who crushes these terrible people. Today, a lot of people want various types of economic or political liberation as well. This is where, you know, all kinds of forms of Marxism have come out, okay? all kinds of stuff like that, where we're wanting all kinds of other liberation. Many people see our greatest needs as physical. There's disease, there's food, there's shelter. Now let's be clear, those things are important, but they're not primary. They're not our deepest need. They're far less important than our deepest need of deliverance from sin. And the way we know that, one key way, is what Jesus came to deliver us from. If all we needed was political liberation, he could have ridden into Rome and just crushed and made the bloods, the, the mountain run red with the blood of all the enemies of God. But that's not what he did. What he did was he died to pay for our sin. See, the basic need that we're talking about here, it, it is very basic. I mean, as Christians, yes. We need deliverance from sin. But it's so basic, it can be easily forgotten. And if we forget this, we start desiring a king that is different than the king that God has actually sent to us. Jesus feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. But if you notice throughout the gospel, that's always secondary. He's always more concerned about the proclamation of the kingdom of God and establishing the kingdom of God. The reason he came was to give himself as a ransom for sin. Notice in Mark 10, 45, this is in this section, and the third time he's going to speak of his death, one of the things he says is this, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the theology of glory says when Messiah comes, what's going to happen? everybody's going to serve Messiah. But Jesus says, no, 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 I came. And notice again, it's the Son of Man. Because you all have so messed up Messiah, I'm going to use a different term. Son of Man, here's why I came. Not to have you serve me, 
but for me to serve you. Because you're sick, and you're dead, and you're broken, and you can't serve me until I have served you. So the, as the church, as the people of God, we can, should, and must work to alleviate all forms of suffering and injustice. That's very important. We, we are engaged here in our local community. We're engaged around the world. Every week we're praying for God's worldwide work, okay? And that includes just, you know, uh, this week we were just chatting uh, the, the pastor's prayer group that I was leading. You may have seen there was a, a shooting right up right up the road here the other night in Bay Ridge Gardens. So we've changed where we're going because we're going to be there to pray in the community. It's important that we do that. It's, it's critical that we do that. But we have to understand all that's the overflow of the gospel in our lives. It is the overflow of the forgiveness of sins that comes to us. And if the church becomes captive to a social gospel, we become unfaithful to God and ultimately of no use to the world. If Jesus had crushed Rome, great. It would have brought political liberation to Israel and we would have all died and gone to hell. That's the blunt truth. And if the church is only about relieving temporal needs, we have become unfaithful to God and ultimately people are going to say, what were you thinking? Why were you not proclaiming the good news to me? Why did you not tell me what I truly, deeply needed? But this is why for us as believers, this is why we gather each week. If our hearts are captured by the King who came to die and to rescue us from sin and eternal death, then what's going to happen is we are propelled to worship Him and to compassionately proclaim the gospel to everyone else and to minister to their temporal needs. But first, our heart has to be captivated by the King who is. So we're going to come now to the Lord's table because this is part of us being reminded and part of us being captivated because here we remember our deepest need, that our need is salvation. And the way of that salvation is broken body and shed blood. The problem we have is we way underestimate how destructive sin is. Um, I recently have been rereading through the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and I love a line where when one of the characters has betrayed everyone, he's committed cosmic treason, and the other children want their brother to be saved, and they say, Aslan, are you going to intervene and save him? And the Christ figure Aslan says, all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. They have no conception of what's going to be required to bring redemption to their brother. And friends, this is what goes on around us all the time. People think sin is small. All has been done, and it required much more than we ever thought. Adam and Eve thought sin, rip a couple of fig leaves off, problem solved. And even when God slew an animal and covered them, problem solved, 
Only the blood of God's eternal Son can solve that problem. And so we're reminded of that as we come here to this table. So I want to encourage you to come, to remember, and to give thanks. Again, if you are a visitor here with us today, you do not have to be a member of our congregation. You just have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus with what we've been talking about. You have to understand that he came to die for your sin and mine. If you believe that and you embrace that, you are welcome to this table. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements as we do so. You go ahead and grab the, the two cups, one with the bread and one with the juice. And then I encourage you to be meditating on what it means that Christ died for your sins. Father, as we come to this table, we are reminded that our thoughts are not your thoughts, and our ways are not your ways. How prone we are to focus on the temporal rather than the eternal, to fixate on the symptoms rather than the sickness of sin. But you have revealed clearly that our greatest problem is sin. And that only the redemption provided by your Son can save us. So we come humbly before you now, confessing our sin and our inability to save ourselves and receiving the redeeming work of Jesus that alone can save. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, from the beginning, we have underestimated the destructiveness of sin, thinking its deathly work could be undone by human efforts. And even when we cried out for you to save, we thought you would do this through a display of raw power, crushing those we deigned to be our enemies. But you, the just and gentle promised one, triumphed o'er the fall, conquering by your own defeat and winning by losing all. Oh, the marvel of the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself so willingly for us and for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. We will conclude in prayer and God's word of blessing. Lord, like Peter, our eyes have been opened to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we know that this is not because of our wisdom and righteousness, but because of the illuminating work of your Spirit. But Lord, like Peter, we admit that we still see imperfectly. 
thinking you were like us and asking you to work in the ways of this fallen world. But Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit who continues to heal our sight and to transform our wills. Lord, we ask that he would work in us this week, forming and fashioning us to be like Jesus so that we might be conformed more and more to his image and our desires and deeds, so that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you, knowing and serving your purposes in the world today. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King who died, but who has been raised to life, and is now seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning with you in the power of the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. And God's people say, Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip us with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. You've been given eyes to see. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.